Tonight, Cult Cinema Cavalcade concludes its 14-film adventure through the Showa era of Godzilla with guidance from Rondo award-winning author and kaiju master August Rogone. Welcome to Cult Cinema Cavalcade. The episode you are listening to will include plot spoilers and may contain harsh language. This is Cult Cinema Cavalcade. This is episode 137. This is Brandon, and as always with me is your Mecca co-hoster, Colin. It's an honor to be here because, well, it's part of my show. It'd be weird if I wasn't here. <laughs> Today we are here to discuss the 1975 film Terror of Mecha Godzilla. Colin, tell us how the Showa era comes to a close. Godzilla comes to the rescue when an alien race rebuilds Mecha Godzilla to destroy Earth cities. A traitor scientist gives them a second weapon, Titanosaurus. Terror of Mechagodzilla is directed by Ishiro Honda and stars, and I, this is the first time I feel embarrassed to screw up these names in a row because <laughs> of our guest waiting in the wings, but stars, Toru Kawai as Godzilla, Aishimura as Godzilla 2, and Katsume Nimiyamoto as Titanosaurus. <sighs> I'm going to get slapped over that. So welcome back to the final part of our wave of destruction through the Showa era of Godzilla films. And I'm not sure there's a bigger way to close this off than with our very special guest joining us for discussion today, a multiple Rondo award-winning author and the expert on all things kaiju-related and Japanese horror and science fiction films, August Ragone. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me aboard. Hey, August. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for the time. Tell our listeners why you're kind of a big deal in this world of Godzilla and kaiju things. <laughs> well, I was a kid in the 70s growing up with this stuff. And luckily, being born and raised in San Francisco, not only was that time Godzilla time in those years, Godzilla was like the biggest thing. The only thing that kind of knocked Godzilla off the top shelf in the 70s was Star Wars. You know, uh, Star Trek had obviously blew up in the 70s. Godzilla was like the big, the big, big fandom, thankfully, before the Internet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, everybody in your school would talk about the movies. The, the local stations would run big ads in the TV guides. You know, it would be like the Friday Night Fights, King Kong versus Godzilla on ABC Channel 7. You know, mm -hmm. full-page TV guide ad for a local station broadcast of King Kong versus Godzilla. It was that crazy. All the monster magazines were doing articles on Godzilla. And, you know, luckily, like I said, born and raised in San Francisco, we had stations that just fed us this stuff. Every week you could catch a Japanese monster movie on TV. And then I discovered Japantown. Now, I knew we had a Chinatown. San Francisco's world famous for its Chinatown. Mm -hmm. And uh, little did I know that there was Japantown. And once I went there on a field trip uh, in grammar school and walked into a couple stores that had rows of monster toys imported from Japan that I never knew existed it was sort of like, you know, that was the end of my life right there. My my life went into a spiral from that point. Instead of being, you know, a successful scientist or maybe a NASA astronaut, you know, I became a guy who talks about Japanese monster movies and and collects old vinyl toys meant for children. 
<laughs> you meant your destiny is what you meant to say. No, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. But back in the 70s, there were also horror hosts, which was a phenomenon from coast to coast in America. And everybody had their own local horror host, no matter what city or region you were in. And our horror host sort of supported Godzilla fandom and asked kids, if you have any information on an upcoming Godzilla movie, you know, write us a letter and we'll read that. We'll share it on the show. And so what I did is I stuffed a whole bunch of materials that I got at Japantown and wrote out a big whole list of Godzilla things that were coming up and uh, sent it, put it stuck in an envelope. And uh, he was at a public appearance and I gave it to him. And that's not the story of like, you know, the kid who had the hero and then mm -hmm. the hero disappoints him by ignoring his letter. Right. You know, and then there's the redemption at the end of it. No, it was like I, as a kid, I went, yeah, he's busy. He's a busy guy. He's on TV all the time. <laughs> you, you immediately know, so I knew. Because I just included in the letter. I didn't expect him to read it on the air, really. I just said, here's FYI. Here's a package of stuff. And when you're done, here's my return address. Please send it back. So, you know, I was like, okay, whatever. You know, he's a busy guy. I'll wait. And it was several months later. I come home from school. And my mother told me that our horror host, Bob Wilkins, called and wants me to call him back. And after I was through doing flip-flops and, and cartwheels and <laughs> handsprings, you know, I, call, I called him up very nervously. This man who came into our homes every Saturday night shows horror films. And he said, thanks for the package. And would I like to come on the show and talk about Godzilla? And that's really kind of where it started. And then he uh, had me on the show several times. And that grew into, for some reason, he liked me. For some reason, I was articulate as, as a 13-year-old. Had me on the show a few times, and that expanded when he did a day show called Captain Cosmic. That was Monday through Friday, in addition to his Creature Features gig. And the whole idea behind Captain Cosmic was to show Japanese superhero TV shows, like Ultraman and Johnny Sacco and his flying robot and the space giants. And so then I became his consultant on that show and a frequent guest. I think I was on that show like 24 times. You know, I'd come on and talk about Augie's going to talk about Ultra, you know Ultraman today, and that's where it really all kind of started. And I just got into writing more as the television stuff waned, and doing radio and all that, and just started uh, writing about this stuff because I saw so much inaccuracy in a magazine. I pick up a magazine and the caption was wrong, or they spelled the name of the director wrong, or the name of the you know whoever was wrong. And I was that kid who wrote, "Dear editor," <laughs> pushes up glasses. Excuse me. Uh, yes. You uh, got the name. You, you, it is, it, it was not Bergon. It's Gigan. <laughs> you know, I was issue at issue 44. And then I started fair, writing. To be fair, that's kind of an insult to, to, to Gigan to be confused with, uh, with Bergon, to be fair. So. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, you know, hard luck kid, man. That guy just never gets an even break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He doesn't get a lot of respect, but does he deserve it? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, you know. So, you know, I did that. I started writing for fanzines and moved to Japan for a while and tried to meet as many people as I could who were involved in this stuff. Back in the, that was, went to Japan in the 80s and then came back and became a bum. You know, I came back and I started doing a, working with a friend of mine on a magazine and we did a magazine about Japanese sci-fi called Markalite which was being published by the same company, a local, little local guy doing another magazine called Animag, which was the first anime magazine mm. in, in the Western world. Unfortunately, this guy was, this guy was a wargaming magazine. He did famous kind of war, famous wargaming 
magazines like The Grenadier. At some point, when the, uh, Animag left him for Malibu Comics without much word, and that sort of started a domino effect with his publishing company, and then our magazine just wasn't published anymore. You know, so... <laughs> So then we kind of kicked around doing other stuff and then got involved with the internet, and here we are, 20-something 20, 20 years later. I've worked on DVDs, too, and stuff yeah. like that. Whatever. Oh, yeah, Whatever. you've hosted stuff on Shout Factory TV, one of our favorite streaming services. And then you've recently recorded some intros for the upcoming set from Arrow. Right, for Gamera. Gamera, they're big, yeah. big collection. They're like, we see you, Shout Factory, and we move you Gamera. So. Right, right, you yeah. <laughs> know. You know, well, you know, or not? I'm sorry, know. Criterion. We see you, Criterion. Oh, right. Well, that, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. We see you, Criterion. We're going to actually have audio commentaries on these things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I yeah. think, I, I think, right now, let's you know lay the little bit of scoop and not the scuttlebutt on the internet. Is that I think, pretty much every single movie on that set, all twelve Gamera films, are going to have audio commentaries. It's kind of crazy. I was going to say how it's many? Kinda, the, well, I was going to say. Some of those were, certainly the the people won't be around, you know, alive still that made it right. So am I just making that up? Well, some of the guys who worked on the more recent Gamera films are, you know, still. Oh, young. sure, certainly, right. certainly, yes. The old the old films, everybody's pretty much gone, or they're very they're very old mm -hmm. now. Well, a lot of times, uh, like uh, Shout Factory, a lot of times will grab historians or authors and people right. to, to do a yeah. commentary instead. Yeah. For... So for these commentaries on Arrow, it's a lot of fan commentaries. And I think they asked me to record one, and I just didn't have the time to do it because mm -hmm. I was working on a couple other projects that overlapped, and Arrow's box set got pushed back a little bit because of a... Uh, it happens when you're dealing with Japanese companies. There's always a lot mm -hmm. of paperwork and the translations and going back and forth. And I could have actually done it, but they told me that they were going to use my two shout commentaries. Oh, okay. Initially, so, but at the same time, then they said, well, you know, we really like that thing you did with Shoutback. That's not an English accent. Arrow, Arrow's <laughs> That's a British right, yeah. company. I'm sounding like, you know, a guy, you know, guy in New York, you know, on the Lower East Side or something. So um, the Arrow talks to the Shout Factory, and Shout Factory says, oh, y'all, yeah, you can you can use your commentary. Well, that's great. <laughs> well, it, was, it went something like that. <laughs> uh, but then I think what happened was they really liked the Gamera Marathon I did for Shout Factory streaming marathon mm -hmm. a couple years back, and they said, "Well, we're going to think we're thinking of getting the rights to those from Shout and and putting those before all the movies." And I kind of went, "Oh God, that was only supposed to be shown once," you know. <laughs> but then you know, a few months later, they got back to me and said, "Hey, well, you know, we'd just rather have you reshoot the whole thing." Ah. And you know, I really sometimes don't like retreading right. something that huge. But I went, yeah, what the hell? I could update some of the stuff and edit out anything, I, anything that was lame. So we, we just shot that a couple of weeks ago, and oh, that was that was a fun session. It was it was exhausting. It was exhausting. We had to do them all in one day. Oh. So, so I man, we managed to get a, get everything done in about six hours. But uh, that was that was pretty that was pretty grueling. But they'll be on there. I hope they look fine. Yeah. You know, I, I hope I hope they look fine, and I hope they're in. More importantly, uh, you know, I hope that they're informative because I tried in different other ways going, well, you know, I could, you know, I could take the scripts and I could, you know, we could make it into a booklet. Yeah. And nobody has, mm. Then nobody has to look at me. <laughs> oh. You know, and, and, and they were like, no, we already have another guy doing the booklet. I went, oh, geez. OK, great. <laughs> so you failed there. OK. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Arrow does produce quality VAM, so that's why they're. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. There. Good restorations oh, and VAM, so. 
yeah, this thing's gonna be this thing's gonna be basically your veritable fruit basket <laughs> of, of, of kaiju goodness. There's gonna be a lot of really diverse material, a lot of very different voices on this set. It's a grand experiment. We'll see how it comes off. You know, most people are already happy it's got more than sight and scene than, than Criterion's Godzilla set has. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, and hope these sets just keep. I mean, the Criterion maybe have started a chain reaction of more sets coming out for kaiju stuff. I don't know. They pretty much tapped everything out. I mean, Arrow's got a couple other t- a couple other films that they're going to be putting out, but there's nothing as kind of like a big momentous box set. I mean, yeah. as far as like mm-hmm. the you know the '80s and '90s Godzilla films, Sony has most of them. Miramax has one, and the other one Toho keeps fighting Anchor Bay over. Well, yeah. Godzilla '85. That's kind of like up in the air for any kind of box set going on with that. I will I don't say, I, I never say never after I told people for years that they would never, ever be able to put together a Halloween box set, and let alone Shout Factory did it. Oh, and that's I true. Was, I was that's like, true. well, yeah. I guess I can never say no. Like, some things yeah. just like, yeah, that'll never happen. But well, oh, you man. Know, right. Some things like that have to be hit, you know, like spearheaded by a guy like Cliff McMillan. Right, true, yeah. Or it's not going to happen, you know. And times so, are changing, so I mean, like right now, you know, Paramount's letting people sublicense things, and right. who knows? So, but yeah. there, there is where there's money to made. Everybody wants to have a little bit of it, so that's right. The hard yeah. thing. Yeah. <gasps> Come on and shoot. You can't kill me, anyways. So what do your bullets matter? <laughs> Fire! <laughs> Speaking of money to be made, this movie we're talking about didn't make all the monies to be made that they would have hoped for Godzilla. Uh, well, there's an interesting thing with that, you know, mm-hmm. is that each box office receipt for all of those movies that came out in the 70s, each one was lower than the last one. Yeah. There's like a lot of factors when people put out numbers without context, like fans in America have been doing this for years. Once they've been able, once they were able to find box office numbers, they started compiling lists of these box office numbers, but they have very little context to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was going on after 1961 was you saw the reduction of movie theaters across the board. Studios were downsizing. Unlike America, the studios kept their theaters, unlike what was happening in the United States, where mm-hmm. they broke that monopoly. They started reducing the amount of theaters, and that got even worse when television became very powerful. And people were staying at home, and they tried everything they could do to get people back into theaters. So the number of theaters were reduced. So there's all these other factors that nobody ever added up. Sure, this movie Mm -hmm. sold X amount of tickets, but there are only so many theaters it played in. So it's per Uh, theater average is probably pretty nice. Yeah, but it could be. Yeah, When you get to the 70s films, it's a special case because all of the 70s movies, that's well, including Godzilla's Revenge, all of those films were part of a kitty matinee package. They weren't shown to general audiences. They were part of a package that had cartoons and shorts. They only played during the day. Gotcha. Limited screenings. Right. And during the summer, you know, if they had a summer one or a a school break one, you know, it might play Monday through Friday. I'm still trying to find out how many days a week those things played. If they were just playing on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Or if they were just playing, you know, if they were playing Monday through Monday through Monday. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to ascertain that's a question. One of those questions, whenever I have the right person to ask, I forget to ask that <laughs> right person in Japan <laughs> that question. Like, on you your flight back in like, 1972? Right, exactly. 
you know, do you, you have to have those numbers, <laughs> but these things were kitty matinee movies. So, you know, the numbers are kind of, well, you know, how can we average those numbers? You know, mm-hmm. it's mostly parents dropping their kids off. Here you go. We're going to go shopping. Cause this is a three hour package or whatever it was of short subjects in a Godzilla movie. It's kind of really hard to figure out those numbers, but yes, technically it was the lowest earning. <laughs> Right, yeah. yeah. And you saw this movie in the theater when it was released in the United States, correct? Right, right. Now, it had been kicked around by this guy, Bob Kahn, or quote-unquote Bob Kahn Enterprises, Mm -hmm. uh, out of New York. And according to some people, I can't find the original source anymore. It's like one of those things, the American releasing stuff is all kind of peripheral to me. I like it, I enjoy it, I like to know it. But it's not like it's ultimately important to me is like how the films were made right Mm -hmm. but obviously by how i well tracked i did the numbers for the the 70s godzilla movies and what the what days the matinees were of course bob Kahn apparently was one of the guys from cinema shares that released the previous godzilla films cinema shares international or downtown distribution every time Mm -hmm. they got in trouble with somebody they would just change the name you know now it's bob Kahn. Bob Kahn put that film out. Apparently, the first date it had in the United States was in April of 78. It was titled Terror of Godzilla. It was an on-screen title, The Terror of Godzilla. Not the, but just Terror of Godzilla. Mm-hmm. It had some interesting edits. Anytime blood was gushing or somebody would get shot or some act of violence would happen to a person, like when one of the good guys tries to strangle one of the bad guys. All that stuff was like really crudely edited out so they could just quickly push that through to get a G rating. Because interestingly enough, or maybe not interesting at all, when Megalon first went to the MPAA, we're talking Godzilla versus Megalon. Right. Right. It it got an R. <laughs> um, what? <laughs> yeah. Now, how, how much of that was due to the short shorts on the young boy? Let's be honest. Uh, well, we're not going to get into Nambla territory, I'll tell you. <laughs> but, no, but seriously, there was a lot of blood in the uncut version. You notice when Megalon finally... Most people saw an, an equally edited print to Terror of Godzilla, and they just snipped stuff out. And then when you see the Japanese version, you see all this stuff that was snipped out, like people getting crushed by a big boulder and blood mm-hmm. spitting blood out of his mouth. And the two Japanese truck drivers who have all the Playboy pinups in their cab. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about it. Yeah. That are uncensored, you know? So yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, these these guys like Cinema Shares and Bob Kahn, every print they had that they printed, even though, like, maybe they were told, you know, well, that's you can't show that one. They only had so many prints to sh- send out to so many theaters, you know, and they would go territory yeah. by territory. So there was a theater in the San Francisco Bay Area in, in San Jose, California, which is better known around the world as Silicon Valley. And they had a Godzilla marathon the summer of 76 when Megalon was released and they showed like Ghidra, the three headed monster and destroy all monsters with Megalon and Yogg monster from space. And the print of Megalon was the R print ah. because I was in the theater going, ah, ah, that wasn't in the, all the, the other 45 times I saw the movie in, in first release. Cause I had nothing better to do with my life than go and see this movie every day. This is before VCRs, you know, so you'd see the movie or you're not, who knew, you know, who knew when it would show up on television. So you try to go see it as many times as possible. And I pretty much have the giant spider invasion memorized because of how many times I went to see Megalon. Uh, (laughs) Because that was the co-feature. So it's a high price to pay. Yeah, yeah, it's a high price to pay. You know, it's like, you know, Barbara Hale and the skipper. 
you know. <laughs> and oh, a giant VW with hairy legs. That's two hails. So yeah, two. Oh yes. Oh yes. The tale of two hails. <laughs> that was the original title of the movie, but then they said, you know, let's go with the spiders. Yeah, we got to put the spider in there. So where do we fit the spider in? Hey, Louie, where do we fit the spider in? Uh, so let's get into the the movie itself. Yeah, yeah. Because um, this is all bunch yeah. of malarkey. Bunch, bunch of buildup. <laughs> this one actually feels to me after going through all these, getting up to here, like the first like direct sequel of of all of them story wise. You know, right. things have been familiar in the past, but this one feels like a direct narrative follow up. And we have a recap of the previous, the end of the previous movie in here. To right. you know, remind moviegoers because you know it's been years, and if you didn't see the previous one, yeah, you, you might want to catch up on the story. And it's the right. first like legitimate, hey, you know what? Stock footage is fine here because we're recapping the previous movie. Yes. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Whereas the last few we've been through have been, you know, yeah. entire scenes lifted and then just inserted yeah. into the next movie. Yeah, none yeah. of that here. Well, thank you know, God. That happened. That was especially problematic with Guy Gan. Yeah. Yeah, and, I you know, don't people, doubt it. Yeah. People, people blame Megalon. When Megalon was used to be roasted, well, it still gets roasted, but mm-hmm. when people really used to re- roast it back in the day, you know, they would, you know, Godzilla versus stock footage was a nickname that movie had. But Gigan has way more oh, yeah. stock yeah. footage. Megalon than, had than Megalon. two new things in it. So, I mean, it had to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Had to, but yeah, but... Terror of Mechagodzilla was really kind of like a, uh, you know, roll out the barrel and see what we can do with this movie because it's going to be the last one. Uh, so it, it was making. planned as a last one or was it just like, eh, look at the numbers where we're done? Or... Yeah, it was pretty much by the numbers. They kind of saw the writing on the wall. You know, there was nothing planned for after it. Usually when they were in production on one movie, they were sort of planning the next one. Gotcha. Uh, and you have some of that going on with the previous films. You know, there was like going to be a Godzilla versus Hedera 2. There was a synopsis written up for that, a treatment written up for that. Gigan went through a bunch of different evolutions, kind of broken up into two pieces, and part of it became Megalon, and part of it became, you know, Godzilla versus Gigan, and, you know, Mechagodzilla had different things in it. And Terra Mechagodzilla, when it started, you know, had actually the Titanosaurus were going to be two monsters, not one. Oh, okay. Yeah, this one, while intentional or not, feels kind of like a uh, conclusion. They bring a Shiro Hondo right. ba- Honda mm-hmm. back, and it just kind of it has this grand finale feeling to it in, in an odd way, without maybe right. even attempting to be. But you can feel he's like Honda's back. Like every time he comes back in this, you're like, oh yeah, this guy really knows how to make these darn things. <laughs> like I, you just feel like a there's like a just like the guy takes it. Like seriously, as as any you know, directing some master, you know, super masterpiece or whatever, he takes the material, like every aspect of it, seriously, rather than like I just making a hokey movie for kids, which right. some of them could kind of yeah. come across, and like just everything he like the look of his films, the way he handles the monsters. I mean, the, the you way see he cuts. more people running in terror in his yeah, he, he, yeah. This one really had a nice sense of scale, a sense of danger urgency and that hadn't been there maybe since like the first one even well yeah you know you know there was some in the early 60s but definitely you know that was something that was missing by you know this period mm-hmm. this stretch i mean uh hetera comes close to yeah. having mm-hmm. a lot. in fact it, i think it right. had, might have a little more like uh, actually like you know body horror yeah in it you know than than any of the other films but it's sort oh, yeah, of like there's a class by itself yeah there's multiple times you see like the, 
actual individuals die in that movie. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I was a big fan of Hedera when we watched that one. And I this one introduces a kaiju that finally doesn't feel like a, a child's hodgepodge of things, too, with Titanosaurus. <laughs> right. It's like this feels like a natural extension rather than mm, th- like these crazy concoctions like Gigan and, you know, even Hedera was a, a weird concoction itself. This one just kind of felt like right. it went with the earlier films with Titanosaurus and he's, he's a bastard himself too, man. He, he's really, he bring, I feel uneasy when he's there because he feels dangerous. He doesn't feel just, Mm -hmm. I am here to fight like these, these kaijus in here. They, I feel like they have personalities that aren't like showboating personalities. They just kind of, you kind of understand their motivations and stuff. And it's right. You know, the Honda factor, I guess. Right. And there's also the, you know, Titanosaurus is, is tortured mm-hmm. because it's being controlled against its will to uh-huh. do bad things. It's supposed yeah. to be a gentle dinosaur. You know, a gentle so dinosaur. Yeah. there's that little conflict there. You know, and there were things that they had to they had to work out. You know, that's give a lot of the credit to to Honda for being able to have a script that Toho said, we gotta cut the budget down <laughs> from right. what mm-hmm. is in this script. Because there were two Titanosaurus monsters that okay. were just called the Titans originally. And they would combine into one monster, which means there would be technically three new monsters in the movie. So you had the two twins mm-hmm. that combine and then turn into a, a, a combined form. And they said, let's just have the one monster. And I think, you know, they really get away with it. There's nothing alluding to that there's something missing, mm-hmm. you know, in the yeah. film. That was just sort of like an added contour to the script. There was some symbolism with the twin monsters, but I think it was just a conceit that the writer wanted to have something new that would attract kids to go see this movie wow two monsters that combine you know this feels dark for the kids you know like it's oh yeah it's a bit more vicious well interesting too is that at the time in japan what was permissible in children's entertainment was far beyond what was going on in the united states and uh parents back then that were watching what was going on with cartoons and censoring children's television would have probably had like an aneurysm if they saw what the japanese kids were getting on tv there are shows like Mast Rider that were on in the 70s where the, the monster would be human-sized monsters. They would play up a horror angle and there'd be a lot of like, you know, somebody's house would get broken into and in the dark the power goes out and the monster comes out and then spits foam on you and then the person would dissolve in, on camera. Oh. And this is a kid, this is a kid show. People were routinely decapitated, dismembered, vivisected. You know, this all happened on Japanese television during the, during the 70s. So what you see in, in Terror Mechagodzilla and, and sort of like this sort of darkness, although it's it's kind of like this candy-coated veneer mm-hmm. of, a, of, mm-hmm. a, of a children's movie with, you know, the silver spacesuits and the, the weird helmets on the bad guys. And they play it straight-faced, and but the movie's kind of very dark in, it, in its tone. Like if they just did the designs a little more realistically, so to speak, or if they just toned down the look of the aliens that, yeah. you know, maybe an adult would kind of take mistake it for you know a general audience picture that's kind of but, what i uh, thought when i would see like the aliens helmets like as soon as like they came on the screen with those things i just immediately thought oh no yeah what are the, we what are we doing here it's the one thing that feels off from the rest of the movie is those helmets right. what if we had a kind of a serious movie and then we put like a looney tunes hat right on their head <laughs> right but God. this is this is right you know right in step with what kids were watching on tv at mm-hmm. the time so we would have like something like one of the Ultraman shows, which there are many, and, and you always a, have that, like a science patrol. By the time you get in the 70s, they have these really big, crazy, ornate helmets. 
So this is kind of like more conservative of a helmet than in Terror yeah. Mechagodzilla than you might be seeing on Japanese television at the time. Right. And they actually, you mentioned Ultraman, they have a transplant from there with Tomoko Ali, who plays Katsura Mafune. She was apparently on Ultraman at the time. So they kind of interviewed. Yeah, it was uh, familiar yeah, with that. This show. was this was her this was her uh, motion picture debut, but she was already mm-hmm. doing television, and she was in the series from the previous year, which was just wrapping up. I think the series had just wrapped when this movie was hitting theaters in Japan, and it was called Ultraman Leo. It was like the last of the iterations of the Ultraman series uh, released in the seventies. She was a patrol member in one of those science patrol type teams. And she was, like, in a number of episodes towards, I think, the last third of the series. Gotcha. Yeah, she plays a cyborg woman here who's a hero villain. I I refer to her as the Japanese Phoebe Cates. That's what I, <laughs> she reminded me of. Yeah, this is, she's a tr- very tragic figure in this, mm-hmm. in all of this, because... You know, you have her, she's trying to help her father, that everyone's we, rejected, the scientific community is completely kicked to the curb. And I, I tell you, I immediately notice, like, when when I, I get excited that, like, oh, Shiro Hondo is back, when, like, that immediately the shot of her in the opening staring off the sea in that dress, I'm like, that was just damn good filmmaking right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like, absolutely. We're, we're in for a treat here. And then, you know, there's a little mystery behind her before we find out she's a cyborg, and we even get to see, like, this surgery on her where we we get a pair of boobs in a godzilla movie but i don't i'm pretty sure those aren't real those oh, are yeah oh no it's those are <laughs> those are foam rubber or, or styrofoam yeah or something yeah like yeah but i was like oh but, uh, okay there we are <laughs> yeah i was, I was yeah. immediately like not shocked but like certainly surprised then immediately like oh never mind it's they're fake i don't care anymore <laughs> yeah i think it was i think it was like in the the early to mid 70s we had a local japanese television programmer every city used to have an international station mm-hmm. and you know you see italian programming and dutch tv or whatever the hell it was but we had sunday night was japanese programming and there was a cartoon a kids cartoon on that was called obake no kyutaro which was kyutaro the ghost which was based on a manga popular manga and these were shorts and, you know, it was on, it was Japanese. It was on this Japanese night, this Japanese block of programming on Sunday nights. So I watched everything from the cup of noodles commercials to the variety shows and whatever else was on because it's from Japan. It's really from Japan. This is what people watch on Japanese TV. So they had the segment of this cartoon on and they're walking through an amusement park and there's a woman sitting on a bench breastfeeding her child. There were bare breasts in a cartoon. Oh, wow. Mm. And I went, What? <laughs> at the time, I was, I don't know, I was 12 or something like that. And I went, what? Well, again, what was permissible at, on TV at the time? It's Japanese television and, and movies have gotten a little more conservative since since yeah. then. Yeah. But uh, they were radically trying to get anybody into movie theaters by throwing everything they could at you. And so that's why you had like these hyper violent movies like Lone Wolf and Cub. You know, it was mm-hmm. to get people out from their television sets and into the movie theaters. This one, the aliens, are they the same from the last one? I, the guy playing the main one's the same. Right, he's the same actor, but he's it's, playing a different same character. Actor, different character, right. yeah. Right, and for some reason, all of a sudden, they're not apes anymore. You yeah, know? So, they uh, yeah. melty weird faces, because they peel off a face, and it's just kind of like, okay. Right. Yeah, just burn just victims, like, apparently. They, they kind of they look reminiscent of the makeup that was underneath the helmets of the Mysterians in Honda's earlier film, The Mysterians, in 1957. Mm-hmm. Those were like, they had, they had uh, keloid scars all over their faces. Mm-hmm. So from uh, the nuclear wars that the Mysterians had that 
destroyed their original home world. So it kind of harkens back to that. Back then, you could get away with a continuity change that that wide mm-hmm. because nobody really expected tight continuity in those days. Oh no! Uh, yeah, you didn't have you didn't get to watch it on VHS over and over and over and over again. Now imagine yeah, how but how but how how somebody would freak out now and how maybe somebody would freak out or might freak out when Craig leaves being Bond and they get somebody else oh, to yeah. be Bond. Or well, back I, in the '60s, you know, it's like wait a minute. Yeah, these things ultimately they, the people. The weird thing is, we growing up being film geeks and stuff, we we thought like continuity, canon stuff was like super important. I think we stress right. and over importance. Today, you couldn't even get away with changing Rhodey in Iron Man from Terrence Howard to Don Cheadle. Like that's like <laughs> right. one of the last right. casting changes. Right. That I think like people would just go nuts, and there's no reason to. It's just it's a part. It's, yeah. you know, some people will be better at the part. Some people will be known as that part. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of guys who grew up to be today's filmmakers, you know, uh, noticed that in the past. They go, well, you know, I'd like to we should do more continuity. Yeah. Like Colin and I talk about a lot about how we miss how things we don't want like trashy stuff, but how they used to be a little looser, a little more sloppy with things. There's kind of an interesting it makes behind the scenes things a little more interesting to learn. Right. And just, you know, not worrying about that stuff and, you know, Sometimes right. an actor, a part is played by two different actors. It just it happens, but right. now it's just sacrilegious to recast anybody. Yeah, and that's and, why you know in a seventies Godzilla movie you can have in one movie mm-hmm. Godzilla turns himself into a electromagnet, and the next movie that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, we or lightning hurts him against King Kong and and then strengthens in, him in other movies. In every right. other movie. Yeah. Right, you know, so it's it's these little these little things that were just they said this will be fun for this movie, yeah, <laughs> and that's why Godzilla's look changed every movie too mm-hmm. in the sixties. Mm-hmm. It was it was sort of like let's make them look a little more different this time. Let, they were able to experiment. There was a lot more freedom for the filmmakers, you know, and much to the anxiety of of young fans growing up now looking back at those films. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They well, get the, the, like, ah, just, God, God, doesn't look like that Godzilla. And, that's what I was going to say. Like, he looks like so different in so many of those movies where, you know, not even in between movies, in the same movie where they use right. stock footage from the other one. And it's not that jarring necessarily, but it is right. It is noticeable and it makes it feel just cheaper. Yeah. yeah. And then there's, there's sometimes when they use uh, the same Godzilla suit for four movies and then people bitch about that. Right? <laughs> it's like the same right. people. Like, well, you right. know. They could have made another one that looked exactly. They could have done a million things, but you know they were they were making these movies and they were told, "Here's what you got. Here's the time you got. Go." Yeah. It's like, do you like, like you that know, suit? Well, yeah, but well, there you go. You like that suit, so they yeah. used it. Just in enjoy, movie. just enjoy the movies as they are. Just yeah, enjoy. See, like I don't get upset when I see that stuff. I just get sad because I just think like, oh, that suit's really, it's really hard in that suit. Like we need to retire <laughs> this guy. It's like I know you're gonna budget, but oh, it's bumming me out. <laughs> Yeah, and usually what they would, you know, sometimes it was a matter of, well, we won't make a new Godzilla suit because they're not going to let us do it, but we'll take the money we would have to make that suit. We'll, we'll, you know, part of that money that could have went to it to putting it to another aspect of the special effects, like building a big, a bigger, you know, a bigger set, a bigger miniature set. Like there's a really great miniature city set in this movie when Mechagodzilla blasts everything to hell. Oh, yeah, and it's beautiful watching the explosions. You're watching models and stuff, but man, it's like, is anybody okay? Is everybody okay? That was a big explosion that came out <laughs> right. of that thing. Uh, and that was, that was part of the magic of, of these movies at the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. is, is, is the miniature work. And that's yeah. what attracted me to these movies and made me interested in 
in miniature work and and when it's done right, it's done. <laughs> they do it really right. Oh yeah. Well, and yeah. this one actually mixes in some good shots with some rear projection and mixing models and live action stuff together. And the costume guys to show scale and size with actual people a lot right. more than a lot of the other ones, which I think helps it be more effective. And yeah, also, I just think the the lighting and stuff's a lot better oh, yeah. here. Oh yeah. Well, even when Mechagodzilla two is inactive, he looks scary. <laughs> Like yeah. he's just, mm-hmm. they're like we're just waiting for that thing to turn and start killing people. They just, there's just an appreciation for like releasing him too as they shoot him, and just it takes a while for like Godzilla doesn't show up right away. A lot of the right. monster action doesn't come for a while, but the build to it's great, and the when they they introduce it with like such like care of like making it feel so grand that it's worth it to get right. to it. It's. It's pretty impressive, and it just makes it feel this one feel like this last one's going to count a lot of the right. time as well. Yeah, we're going to go out with a bang instead of a whimper, mm-hmm. and, and they uh, do. Which they could have. Yeah. I was just so happy to see cities getting destroyed again, like, and like yeah. violently destroyed. Like nobody yeah. lives. I mean, we've seen you know some buildings here and there, but it's mostly you know like oh, it's some some industrial plant for some reason. That's super cool right. and that's great, but it was just it's just so nice to see a like a city properly destroyed instead of just like right. there's there's right. still there's still countryside stuff in this, and that's fine too. Right. But th- there is just something about just seeing a, a building just evaporated it's just and the, the very low, satisfying a lot of low angles feet right. looking up from those models into the it's just mm-hmm. yeah it's really see, well done. You, you could kind of see the amount of care by the uh the guy who directed the special effects mm-hmm. uh for this movie teriyoshi nakano he directed the visual effects from all the films from hedera all the way to this one so he did gaigan he did megalon he did mechagodzilla 74 and you could see the different tones in each one. So he's a little yeah. more versatile than people give him credit for. Mm-hmm. And then when Honda says, we want to we want to go back, because Nakano was Eiji Tsuburaya, who's the guy who started it all with the original Godzilla. By the mid-60s, Teruyushi Nakano became his assistant director. So he was second in place to, to Eiji Tsuburaya at the studio during the late 60s. So, you know, they said... Let's you know, we're going to go back to the Subaraya time with this one. You don't have to do so colorful, and you don't have to be mindful of the children. You know, right. make it really <laughs> crazy like a carnival ride, and and film everything at eye lines that are the human eye lines from the mm-hmm. standing on the set. And they had a lot of pressure. Like I think Megalon, they had to shoot that entire film in twelve days. From green light to film in theaters, it was only like six months, but they only had a couple weeks to film it. I believe right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was kind of crazy. So, you know, and here the same guy just showing that he does have skill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, and he, oh, did, yeah, he, yeah, did, yeah. he did display that in another movie made in 73 called Submersion of Japan, which was a super, it was Toho's most big budget special effects movie of the time. And it was based on a science fiction novel about what if the tectonic plate shift starts shifting again and it tears Japan apart. And it's not only just about what how it would happen scientifically, and they was very meticulous in that, but it was also you know how a nation would survive. How would a, the people of Japan have their keep an identity if their entire country vanished from the face of the earth? Mm-hmm. It t- tackled all these questions, but it also had copious amounts of city destruction and volcanoes erupting, and the whole the whole of Japan being destroyed and, and sinking. And it's just and it's like I think a two and a half hour feature film. And Nakano did that, and that was like one of the biggest box office hits for Toho that decade. So, you know, he was very versatile. 
a lot of people don't give him enough credit. Yeah, sure, he had yeah. only a couple of weeks to shoot Megalon, but right, you know, what can you do? You you have right. to do the no. job. Let's move on to like the, the the massive brawl at the end between Godzilla, Mechagodzilla two, and Titanosaurus, which is a reverse. It was two good guys versus a bad guy in the last one. Now it's two bad guys versus a good guy, right? In this one, so I mean, we've been talking about you know the monsters and stuff, but the actual battle, I mm-hmm. dug the hell out of it. I a lot of interesting new kind of stuff. Uh, definitely. You can feel the intensity between, and, and these are you know guy in costumes, mm-hmm. to, but mm-hmm. I could feel like the real intensity between the mm-hmm. all three of them and motivations. And some of the other ones, like I've talked about, how uh, there have been like real like highlights, like during the fights, and I don't know if I really felt that there were like highlights as much as like it was just a consistent level of just really good. Yeah, right. I, I did say one of my my ultimate highlights that I loved was there's. A scene where like Godzilla gets knocked down, jets come mm-hmm. to attack, and Godzilla gets up and charges and like shoulder bum rushes Titanosaurus, and then goes after Mecha Godzilla too. Which just looked the like the slow motion, everything about. I was like, holy crap! <laughs> this is mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like a real move. Looked like a almost something like a football field almost. Right, exactly. But, <laughs> and it was it was pretty awesome. It was it was Ditka. He was doing yes. a good job. <laughs> and I liked him ripping off Mechagodzilla's head again, but this time that doesn't defeat him. He's right. got he's still mm-hmm. active and ready to go, and that was pretty clever. He's got Mechagodzilla 2.0. He's yeah. fighting like the little bubble rock where his head was, or the controller, or whatever that was. <laughs> uh, I think in one of the one of the Japanese books that you know they do like these. You know, sort of a diagrams of the monsters or mm-hmm. anatomical cutaways. It's mm-hmm. like the electronic brain. It's the it is the the main control center for Mechagodzilla. Excellent. So that's yeah. what that thing is under the head. And right. there's even so a few years ago there was well back in the seventies they had these like I was talking earlier they had monster dolls basically these you know uh, vinyl, soft vinyl monsters that were cheap but they were awesome you know and mm-hmm. now they're worth lots of money. But uh, there was a one for Mechagodzilla, which was one of the ha- hardest ones to find. But they never made a Mechagodzilla 2. And so mm-hmm. years later, this guy uh, owns a Japanese company called M1. It's a cottage company. It's this guy, Yuji Nishimura, and his wife run this. And they decided, well, we're going to make some of the monster toys that never came out. So like, sort of like pol- Polar Lights tackling Aurora kits that were never made. So they did a Mechagodzilla 2, and you could take off the head, and it's got the little brain oh, thing cool. inside of it. Yeah, and it comes with a mini Titanosaurus. Which is kind of <laughs> neat. They made it look retro. They made it look to match the the original one. Oh, you know? great. So it's pretty cool. But so yeah, yeah. So you know they did a little bit a little bit different things with the with Mechagodzilla in this one. He's got the drill missiles that go underground and blow up the city from underneath, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. that's you know pretty awesome scene. And when they were shooting that with all the beams and the missile shooting and all that, they decided we're going to shoot this since we don't. The set is big, but it's not as big as we'd like it to be, and we can't build any more sets to keep destroying stuff so what we'll do is we'll shoot this with four cameras 
and we'll do close-ups and mediums and we'll do, you know, wide shots and then intercut it. So it looks like he's still attacking more parts of the city. It's a nice little editing trick yeah. that they did with that. One of the many things I love in this movie is, you know, uh, Mechagodzilla and specifically that <laughs> in the last one he had MG on his arm. This one he right. has MG2. Yeah, electric boogaloo. <laughs> yeah, electric Right, right. But I, this time I love it's personal. <laughs> Mecha Godzilla harder. What what I love is that 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 within the context of this movie, the aliens got him out of the water and said, like, you know what? We need to make sure we're gonna rebrand him. It's yeah. the sequel to the first one. Like, right. why do they care? Yeah. Who's looking at his arm when their city's getting destroyed? Yeah, well, you know, I guess they they did that. They did that for the they did that for the kids. You know, and it's not that the kids are dumb. Yeah. It's just kind of that cool factor. Like, there was a thing at the time in Japan where cars, like foreign uh, automobiles, uh, were becoming really popular, and so you know there were all the uh, you know logos on cars like Porsche and and whatnot, mm-hmm. and Lamborghini. So it's sort of like that was Mechagodzilla. Exactly, it was Mechagodzilla's own branding. It's like he had to be the two number two. You know. <laughs> It's like Mustang what? 2, Mustang 2, Mechagodzilla 2. Mm-hmm. Mechagodzilla's destroying our city. No, Charles, it's Mechagodzilla 2. <laughs> and then the first kid gets punched in the face. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Speaking of those aliens, they didn't get to escape. They they yeah. like ran off and their ships go up and Godzilla like in the middle of fighting just like turns his head and blows him up with his radiation breath. I do I do love yeah. that he has he has no idea what the context of this is. He just sees stuff flying away and he's immediately like pissed at it, so he just blows it up. Right. It's got to be the he, bad guys, you know. Right. I mean, because he has, he has no context to what's happening. He just knows there's something giant that's trying to kill it. He has like. He doesn't know, know what aliens are. He's been on another planet, but he's a, mm-hmm. he's a giant dinosaur. He doesn't know anything. He just Godzilla, Godzilla knows. Godzilla knows. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this ain't his first Trust rodeo me. with aliens. It's, in, it's instinctual. <laughs> he looked over that, and he said, what was that line? He said, if those what? things get away, then Ghidorah's coming back, and I'm not having that again. <laughs> well, there was that line to destroy all monsters. You know, we no longer need to use the controller. Godzilla knows who his natural enemies are. There you go. There yeah. you go. It's all explained away in one line of exposition in, in 1968, man. Yes, it was almost a decade ago. Yeah, you know. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> it's it's the internal the internal logic of monster movies. It's the the one bit of continuity that they kept, other than Godzilla existing. And now... right, right, exactly, exactly. You know how how could that happen? But, you know, this film does have a lot of great things going for it. You know, it doesn't look as shabby around the edges as it could. They really did a great job of production design within the limits that they had. Like, the interiors of the aliens' base was far better than the one in the previous film. You know, actually looked sort of plausible for a sci-fi type picture uh, of the period. Aside from the Lost in Space uniforms, you know, which they just rehashed from the last movie. and just stuck a helmet on them. Mm. You know, it's like you could kind of like, you could kind of... I mean, come on, how many, did you guys see, you know, Starship Invasions? Mm, I don't think so. No. Oh, 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 you really must see Starship Invasions. Starship Invasions, here, here's where I take over the show, and we're going to go into a <laughs> completely different territory until the time runs out. No, but seriously, real quick aside, Starship Invasions, a UFO movie. Oh, it's got Christopher about, Lee. Yes. Uh, with Christopher Lee, Bermuda Triangle stuff, Robert Vaughn as the scientist trying to prove that there are flying saucers it turns into a war between alien races 
and it is just insane with the alien costume design. So nobody, you watch that movie, you'll never be embarrassed watching Terror Mechagodzilla again. Gotcha. <laughs> I, okay, so look at this. I have this is a movie I know of, and it's because of the, the what Christopher Lee is wearing, and it's right. something that's been on my list to like check out. But now I'm going to pop yeah. it up more, higher on that list. But yes, I, oh, I, I looked at, I was like, oh, this is that movie. Okay, yeah, yeah. I saw that in the same theater, Starship Invasions. I saw that in the same theater. I saw Terror of Mechagodzilla, but at least Terror of Mechagodzilla had the dignity of being the second feature to John Carpenter's Halloween. Oh, perfect. Mm. So that the, the entire run they had at that theater, I think I was there every day my allowance would uh, allow, and I would sit and watch <laughs> Halloween twice so I could see Terror Mechagodzilla twice. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, I didn't care about this Halloween movie. I'm here to see the Godzilla movie. And, you know, then I learned to love Halloween really quickly and memorized the dialogue. That for years I didn't even have it on on VHS. I didn't have Halloween on VHS for a long time. I just acted um, out of my house, man. Yeah, you know, and I just I would just be able, I was able to quote dialogue You're like the keys, the keys. <laughs> yeah, that that's really memorized dialogue, folks. There we go. Yeah, that's expert. <laughs> that's expert memorized dialogue. I, I will say the end of the movie. A lot of these movies end with Godzilla wandering off to sea, but this one truly. I really like the shot they picked, the overhead right. and mm-hmm. the color tone, the tone of it. And just felt like it felt, you know, like, OK, this if this is the end, this is the end. But it really felt grand. And and the scale mm-hmm. of it looked great, too, compared to just wandering off in whatever pool he was <laughs> heading off. in. Right, right, right. And, you know, and it, it does it does really give that uh, feeling of a curtain call. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and and did you go with the score, which we haven't talked about, which was awesome right. in this yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. helped it feel like it, it really felt like something special was going on with this movie. Like, this is it. We have to, you know. Yeah, I can't remember yeah. the name of the composer, but I know that he'd, he'd come back with some like uh, he was responsible for some of the better music in the mm-hmm. series. And they'd come back, he, you know, to finish destroy off the all set. monsters, I believe. Yes, yeah, I think well, that, that yeah. might have been the last one, actually, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And it just it just felt like the sense of urgency was with right. this movie and it hadn't been for a couple. But like it just was was there like this movie right. meant meant something to the people right. making it. And it shows on the screen. Well, the composer, uh, Akira Ifukube, is the guy who pretty much was the sound of the Toho science fiction film uh, and monster film from the 50s, you know, all the way through the 60s and did all their major films, whether it was like Rodan or the Mysterians, of course, the original Godzilla and all the major Godzilla movies in the 60s, as well as other films like War of the Gargantuas and Frankenstein Conquers the World and so on and so forth. And they actually used music of his in Godzilla versus Gigan, but they okay. use library, they use library tracks. Right. And then the title track that is used liberally through the, through the film was music he composed for a film that was shown at the, one of the pavilions during Expo 70 in Osaka, Japan. And then Toho made this movie about the birth of the Japanese islands. Like it was a scientific pavilion so it was this special effects film about how the japanese islands were formed and it featured that music we heard as the title track to gigan so they had this track because toho produced that short film and they had that track and they said well let's just let's just use that it'll be cheaper we can we don't have to hire a composer we'll use that because that's fresh music as, as like a title track only people who went to expo 70 
are going to know that music, and they probably are not going to recognize it. They probably went to the pavilion once and sat through the movie once. And uh, we'll just pull music from all the other Godzilla films he did and stick them in there in points. And that's pretty much what they did with Gigan. But uh, yeah, Akira Akira Fukube also did a ton of other movies for various different studios. Have you guys gone to the Daimajin movies yet? No. Okay. Uh, He scored all of those. There were three films. It's a trilogy. Okay. Uh, done by Dae about a stone idol that comes to life and uh, is an avenging god. It's kind of like a Japanese golem is basically what, what it ah, is. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty awesome. The special effects are tremendous. They're period settings. So they're set during the age of samurai. It's usually, you know, uh, the bad guys take over a village, you know, take over a castle. And then they get their comeuppance at the end when, when Daimajin comes out and, and stomps on everyone. So those are really great movies. You should check those out. There was one thing I was thinking about when they were fighting in the movie when Mechagodzilla is just firing this barrage at Godzilla and it looks awesome, first of all. But Mm -hmm. secondly, I just thought, God, imagine being the person in that suit because there are like like all these movies have explosions in them. That's, you know, duh. But this was just like just surrounding directly around the person in the suit and they had to run because the whole right. thing is it's Godzilla running at Mecha Godzilla despite all this crap getting thrown at him he just fights through all the you know missiles and explosions and stuff and just right. how like I don't know if terrifying is the right word but certainly you know you're going to be a little concerned when you're trying right. to run in that right. suit surrounded by that stuff well, I can't speak for uh, Toru Kawai, who played Godzilla in this movie, but the premier Godzilla actor, Haro Nakajima, was saying, all he said when he trained other suit actors, younger guys, he would tell them, be a man. Don't give up. <laughs> don't give up until the job is over. It doesn't matter what happens. You don't stop until the director says cut. Mm-hmm. And he was working on a movie from 1958 called Varan. Mm-hmm. It was another giant monster movie. And there was a scene where he's supposed to, he, Nakajima's, he played all the monsters in those days. And he was crawling across the set over a Jeep that was loaded with explosives in the film and on the miniature itself. And uh, <laughs> they put a little too much gunpowder in that uh, explosion. And he was over he was over the Jeep on all fours. Mm. Mm-hmm. It exploded. The fire in the explosion burned a hole through the bottom of the monster suit. Oh my god. And Ooh. set his crotch on fire. Oh. Oh my oh god. My. That's, why, well, that's why I wondered he, like as, as long as you like like you're in that suit that's going to absorb most of the the damage for most stuff, right. but Yeah. That, that's that the suit, one thing, you know, you could be that, concerned that about. That one Varan suit was made of lighter weight materials for the first time, and they were experimenting with making the monster suits lighter. Mm-hmm. So they would be thinner in various areas. So, yeah, it it burned his crotch. And he finished acting because he's supposed to go in these like death throws, the monster, and falls <laughs> down on the set. And and he did it. He wasn't acting because yeah, his crotch was on fire. Yeah, we we hosted we hosted him at a convention in Los Angeles in 2011, and he was telling this story on stage when I was interviewing him. You know, he just said it wasn't my place to yell out in pain, or to say stop, I'm hurt, because there's a lot of people on the set that are all doing a job and I'm thinking of everybody mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. director. So I did the take until it was done. Then I said, Hey, I'm burned. 
<laughs> he said, don't cry, be a man, do your job until it's done. That's his advice about monster suit acting. <laughs> wow. Yeah, like... Yeah, they don't make tough guys like that. He was also the first man in Japanese film history, and before Godzilla was made, to do a fire stunt in a motion picture. And so the first time in Japan meant they didn't even know what the safety requirements in the United States were in 1953, which were pretty primitive. So they just basically threw a bunch of flammable liquid on him. He was supposed to be a pilot, a zero pilot, on deck of a battleship in the Battle of Midway. Bomb drops on the deck. Boom, and then he's a pilot that's been set on fire by the bomb mm-hmm. that was dropped. And so they just lit him on fire, and he ran around, and they said, fall over. And they had no <laughs> safety equipment. They didn't have any retardant gel. They just set oh his costume God. on fire, and he ran around. And then he drove in the ground. A bunch of people, you know, like, covered him up and put it out. Mm-hmm. And when they came around, they're going like, hey, man, we're going to make this, God- this Godzilla movie thing. And, you know, Subaraya wanted to do... <sighs> Director Subaraya really wanted to do stop motion, but that's going to take like several years to do a movie like that. So we're going to have to put a guy in a suit. Well, who are we going to get to do that? Who are we going to get to (laughs) climb into a monster suit and be set on fire? And hey, what about that guy we set on fire and talk about, you know, the the eagle of the Pacific? Yeah, that Nakajima guy. Go get him. At least this time he'll have a suit. Yeah, right. You know, he was in his early 20s. He said, I'll do it. That's why that man's a legend. That's the real Godzilla there. That's why they call him Mr. Godzilla. Please kill me. Destroy my body. What? Inside me's the controller. Mega Godzilla's brains installed in my stomach. Cut quickly. To stop him. Don't be silly. You must. I can't do it. No, I can't do it. Now comes the point in the episode where we rate the movie we just watched. As we are Cult Cinema Cavalcade, we keep things nice and culty. Our ratings are as follows. Stay with my family, which means eh, you're pretty much just not going to get involved with any alien or scientist business. Converted, which means like a scientist, you might be interested in working with aliens side by side. Or drinking the Kool-Aid, which means ah, you're saving your... Uh, Mecha Godzilla for just all out destruction and conquering of Earth. So, August, how do you rate Terror of Mecha Godzilla? I drank the Kool Aid. And I drank the Kool Aid because this is a great movie. <laughs> it's a great movie in this series. It's, it's a swing back. If you were a teenager or a young adult when uh, the other films like Megalon were coming out and were slightly embarrassed because you really didn't know they were kiddie movies, when you get to Terror of Mecha Godzilla, it was pretty much a, you know, a nice excuse to uh, go, like, see, this one's good. And uh, <laughs> it's got great character development. It harkens back to complex characters and relationships of, like, a film like Monster Zero, which has probably some of the best character work in those 60s films. It's got a great design, Mechagodzilla's back, so that's automatically, uh, you know, a point up. It's got a great number of classic cast members, some of whom you don't recognize. Like, the guy playing Dr. Mafune is Akihiko Hirata, who played the man who created the Oxygen Destroyer in the original Godzilla. So that's a nice dovetail. And it's got some great special effects. It's fairly fast-moving. It takes itself seriously, but not too seriously. And it's a good time at the movies. Colin. 
I enjoyed this movie. I've also seen 14 of these movies, so I'm, I'm glad to uh, put it behind me. But uh, I, I did really enjoy this one. The miniature work is outstanding in this. Like, that's uh, the one thing that's really been pretty consistent through all these movies. It really is the miniature work, and it's no no different here. Monster work is great. There were a couple of times where there was a little bit of a, especially with a, when Titanosaurus was introduced, a little bit of a... Uh, Power Rangers vibe from the angles of the camera. I'm not going to say it didn't necessarily hurt the thing. It's just I noticed it is all. But overall, it is very entertaining and a lot better than some of these other ones we've watched. I know there's others that one others I like more. That's why um, I'm converted on this one. I, I like it. But I know there's going to be so many others that I'm going to reach for more. But it is a very, very solid Godzilla movie. And it has Mecha Godzilla in it. And that's that's enough to get me interested, period, honestly. So, uh, Brandon, how do you rate Terra of Mecha Godzilla? I'm going to drink the Kool-Aid on this one. I really enjoyed it. And I thought after I like I like the last one, the other Mecha Godzilla one quite a bit too, but this one had the filmmaking prowess of Ashiro Honda, and I am hooked. Like he really went out with a bang here. Everything feels grand. It's just good filmmaking. The danger, the the monsters. I thought even like the the gunfights that the humans had were pretty intense and pretty cool. That's one thing we didn't touch upon. It has some light touches of silliness, as we mentioned, with some of the alien helmets and the scientist is kind of a little bit of goofy character in his performance but uh, overall like Godzilla when he first showed up I got really excited like he felt that that reveal was awesome mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. the mecha Godzilla looked even better than the last time like and and I think the films both complement each other well like the first one's kind of just a fun kaiju romp and then this one takes it seriously because they're gonna cap it off and it's a I, I was I've been so happy that after going through these back to back to back to back, that they end on this high of both the I like both right. the Mecha Godzilla films. After starting off kind of strong, then teetering off into hit and miss a bunch, and then the misses were misses for me when they <laughs> yes. missed. And Ashiro Honda redeeming himself after all monsters attack. Like, look, I still got it. You know, Godzilla's revenge is the Wizard of Oz of Godzilla movies, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, this was this is really really good, and I was worried. I was like, "Well, this." I, I was like, "It's June Fukuda gonna upstage Shiro Honda with the Mecha Godzillas?" And for me, no. They were, if anything, even and very complimentary of one another. It they right. I I liked how they worked, and one's a response to the other, and two different films with one really cool bad guy, Mecha Godzilla. And I thought Titanosaurus was cool as well. Like he just didn't feel like a kind of a BS monster to throw in a new Godzilla film. It felt like they thought right. him through, had purpose, and, you know, was definitely a force to be reckoned with. And Yeah, I, cool design, too. Yeah, cool design. I, I enjoyed the heck out of this film. There, there were definitely times where Titanosaurus would wiggle its head and was like, all right, well, that's where the actor's head is. But other than that, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty nice. Yeah. Well, there was a nice, a nice intercutting they have in there of uh, they had a close-up head, that had, uh, you know, mechanical eyes mm-hmm, and a mouth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they were able to use that nicely. I mean, you know, back then, not like they did, you know, like 10 years later in Hollywood or less, where they started doing a sculpt of a monster's head, and then you would have the animatronic head taken out of the same mold. You know, these were all buildups. So, yeah. you know, as far as 
a buildup as opposed to pull doing two pulls out of the same mold. You know, they matched it pretty damn closely. It's all all being done by eyeball, basically. They did a really good job, all things considered. It's a Terra Mega Godzilla trivia for you. Okay. Okay. We'll start off with the. Should we start off with the light one? It's a very quick one, or should we start off the one that's going to go? What the hell? Let's start with the light one because I yeah. want the what the hell to. <laughs> okay. Be on the tail end, yeah. A lot of these guys who were the suit actors by this time, Haru and Nakajima, the original Godzilla, had retired. By Gigan was his last performance as Godzilla, and they were bringing in a bunch of new guys, younger guys. And so there was a guy who worked on this film who named Nikamoto. He played Titanosaurus, but he had the previous year played Ultraman Leo, ah. which ties in with the film star Tomoko Ai playing the lead female character so that they both worked on the same production together. And that leads to the what the hell, which is that Tomoko Ai in few years after Mechagodzilla, Terra Mechagodzilla was made, she appeared in a, an erotic what they call a pink ega or a pink movie where she was the star and did sex scenes called Shunga. And Shunga is a Japanese word for, uh, you know, the pornographic wood blocks mm. uh, from the uh, 1800s. And the movie, her, in the movie, her husband is, is played by a man, <laughs> an Makes actor. Uh, well, yes, <laughs> by, by an actor who <laughs> was one of the many cameo appearances and Shusuke Kaneko's Gamera 2 from 1996. Hmm. Uh. So this, he played a soldier in that film. And it just kind of ties this whole the monsters and kaiju and just the, the overlapping circles, circles upon circles. And it all roads lead to exploitation, samurais, beheadings, and Roman porno. Yeah, and pink <laughs> movies, yeah. See, I was going to ask, like, in the movie, does she, uh, does she plow Mechagodzilla? But I mean, if it's a camera, it's uh, that's uh, that's close, right? It's a totally different studio, man. They don't, you know, they have exclusive contracts. So, oh right, right, right. yeah. That Shunga was made by a company called Nikatsu, and you know, Godzilla was on contract with Toho. Gamera was on contact with Daiei. But you know, by that time when this movie was made, uh, you know, Daiei had uh, filed bankruptcy. In 1971, and he was kind of like you know taking odd jobs, but uh, yeah, he, he he didn't appear in any any uh, pink movies. Mm. Gamera was a little down and out at that time. It took him a while to get out of his shell, but then he came back. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right, Fisher, hand over your lunch money. Penelope, it's Nell. Okay, Nell. Do you watch Fox Kids? Yes. No. You don't watch Spider-Man, Power Rangers, or Woody Woodpecker? No. At the very least, you should watch Godzilla. Why? No reason. Fox Kids, Saturday mornings, weekday afternoons on Fox 5. On the next episode of Cult Cinema Cavalcade, Cullen and I will be wrapping up this Showa Godzilla series with one last episode, ranking the films and talking about some of our favorite things about them. So stay tuned for that. I want to thank August Ragoni for coming on here. We are humbled and honored to have had you on to finish this out. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, what are you working on now? Where can people find or follow you in the world of the Internet social medias? 
Well, now that my book is out of print, which was A.G. Subaraya, Master of Monsters by Chronicle Books. It costs a pretty penny on the secondhand market, sir. Yeah, In yeah demand. it's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. You yeah. know, it's like I should have kept a stash, you know. But yeah. Uh, yeah, after that, you know, I've been I kind of have not really kept up my blog. Uh, you know, people are kind of getting tired of blogs. It's time to do something else. And I've been working on a bunch of other projects. You can find me on Twitter at Ragoni August. And I'm on Facebook. Same spelling, you know. And I pontificate nonsense on there as well. And working on projects, I've got a project that I can't talk about right now, but I can just say it's a project with Shout Factory. It's going to be an audio commentary, and it is a movie, and yes, it is Japanese, coming up in the future. And I'm also going to be working on a couple more films that Arrow is releasing. I think we're going to do we're going to do some on more on camera intros for for those. My favorite thing to do. Uh, <laughs> no, they'll be fun. They'll be fun. It's all fresh, original material. It'll be great. All right. And since the next episode isn't about a movie per se, we won't have a trailer that actually trails like we normally do. Uh, instead, in closing on this episode, uh, we at Cult Cinema Cavalcade and Creative Zombie Studios wish all of our listeners the best in health and safety during these challenging times going on in the world right now. Please be informed. Please act accordingly and with the best interest of others as a whole. Fortunately, our medium allows us the ability to continue on business as usual while many others aren't. And we hope to provide you an audible escape whenever it is you want to cue us up. So as always, we look forward to next time. Thank you for listening to Cult Cinema Cavalcade, part of the Creative Zombie Studios Network. Follow CC Cavalcade on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to the show on cultcinemacavalcade.com, iTunes, and anywhere podcasts are found. For press opportunities, advertising opportunities, and more information on Cult Cinema Cavalcade, contact mail at cultcinemacavalcade.com. Produced by Brad Shoemaker. Edited by Brandon Peters. Narration by Rebecca Peters. Theme song Pink Baby by Happy Elf appears courtesy of the freemusicarchive.org network. The film and music featured in this episode are part of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Join us again in two weeks for a new episode of Cult Cinema Cavalcade. Today we are here to discuss the 1975 film Terror of Mecha Godzilla. Cullen, tell us how the Showa era comes to a close. You gave me your <laughs> introduction oh, did to I? that instead oh. of Sorry. the description of the movie. You silly man. Again. Errors right away. We've already impressed. Yeah, now. You right, August. Yeah. <laughs> the amateur hour has yeah. begun. Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, you should have. You should have been there a couple weeks ago when I filmed. A bunch of introductions for Arrow Video's upcoming Gamera box set. Uh, that was yeah. a day of like, let me do that line again. Let me do that line again. Let me do that line again. Okay, forget it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a day Fifth of one was good. We're good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. All there right, you go, Cullen. Thank you. Okay. Godzilla comes to the rescue when an alien race rebuilds Mechagodzilla to destroy Earth's... Ah, blah, I did it again. Okay. Uh,